Hello, and welcome to this installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our next episode this season, celebrating recent work by Lauren Robertson, is drawn from a panel brought together on March 27, 2023, to discuss her recently published book, Entertaining Uncertainty in the Early Modern Theater, Stage Spectacle and Audience Response. Lauren Robertson is an assistant professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. She specializes in early modern drama with an emphasis on the stagecraft and conventions of the London commercial theater. Her essays appear or are forthcoming in Shakespeare Studies, Renaissance Drama, Shakespeare Quarterly, Publicity in the Early Modern Stage, and English Literary Renaissance. Here is Lauren Robertson. Despite the book's title, Entertaining Uncertainty, I began this project from a position that early modern studies knows quite well. The field's very name describes an era of profound epistemological upheaval, a period in which orthodox modes of thought, rooted in the texts and practices of a remotely ancient world, began to jostle uncomfortably against the methodologies and disciplines that would usher in a recognizably modern one. The expressions of this paradox of early modernity's vestigial nascence are familiar. The Protestant Reformation, the Elizabethan succession crisis, the emergence of empirical science, all of these historical shifts were capable of provoking the people who lived through them into doubt suspending them between possibilities that set the old against the new, the familiar against the strange. So that's what I knew. What I didn't know and wanted to understand was the aestheticized form such crises of knowledge took. What did early modern literature offer to this broader cultural circulation of doubt? This question, I should acknowledge at the outset, has a deceptively obvious answer. To locate instances of the mirror held up to the nature of early modern uncertainty, we might suspect, we need only look for representations of doubting characters. It's not for nothing, after all, that the most famous soliloquy in the whole of English literature is about the stymieing effects of one particularly melancholic man's uncertainty. Hamlet's to be or not to be speech verges on the other way that this account has traditionally been framed, which is to say as simply Shakespeare, the playwright who's been understood to possess an unparalleled capacity to remain in a state of unknowing, since John Keats identified that quality as his negative capability. As is likely obvious, I think the theater was a key participant in what's often been treated more narrowly as an intellectual history of skepticism. But what I found dissatisfying about the established account of the theater's involvement, focused on character and centered on Shakespeare, is that it distorts the mode of early modern performance, which was so often self-consciously presentational rather than representational, interested in attending to its own stagecraft rather than evoking the psychological depth of fictional selves. So if Hamlet's doubt is what haunts this project, in the opening paragraphs of the book, I suggest that in order to see how the early modern theater not only engaged with, but enacted the epistemological clashes of its era, we need to attend to another specter. When the ghost of Hamlet's father emerged on the Globe Theater stage in 1600, I would venture that playgoers were invited to regard that mysterious figure obscured beneath his suit of armor with some skepticism. For one thing, this theater had not settled on a conventional representation for its ghosts by the opening of the 17th century. But it's also true that the spectacle of a supposedly immaterial spirit lumbering on stage in its clunky, loud suit of complete steel, as Hamlet refers to it, likely didn't announce itself as a ghost so much as exactly what it was, an actor, entirely alive and excessively material. It's in this gap between stage craft and stage fiction, between what the play aimed to show and the tools by which the theater brought those spectacles about, that early modern playgoers were invited to inhabit opposed possibilities. And in the case of Hamlet's ghost, 
thereby to share in the very uncertainty that the play's characters variously exhibit about it. At its heart then, Entertaining Uncertainty is a book about form. Because if the form that early modernity took was epistemological clash, what's distinctive about the commercial theater is that it rendered its era's essential shaping principle visible. The theatrical form that emerged within early modern England's mosaic of cultural change was itself oppositional, and more than that, acutely attuned to its opposition. All theater is, at heart, paradoxical. The presentation, as Bernard Beckerman puts it, of an imagined act. But the insistently metatheatrical, highly experimental early modern theater regularly invited its spectators to dwell in that essential paradox of performance. And it did so by drawing attention to its fictional representations as theatrical presentations, its imagined acts as stagecraft. The basic argument of the book is that London's commercial theater industry prospered at the close of the 16th century because it transformed the very shape of its culture into entertainment, rendering spectacular the essential contrariety of early modernity itself. What I hope the book draws out of that claim is twofold. Each chapter takes on a different aspect of performance, bodies, props, time, space, and convention. And what I've envisioned through them is a playgoing experience that's not defined by a Brechtian model, which I think has oddly infiltrated our understanding of early modern performance, despite being fundamentally anachronistic to it. And I'm here referring specifically to the alienation effect, the idea that a playgoer's absorption in an onstage fictional world is what's primary and is that against which the sudden awareness of their estrangement from that fiction is registered. We need uncertainty to understand the nature of the more dynamic and contingent link between the early modern spectator and performance. The nearly constant awareness of the technologies of stagecraft meant that the early modern theater's fictional worlds came into being as a process of both phenomenological apprehension and interpretive suspension, those worlds emerging only at some distance from spectators. What tethered playgoers to the stage was, at heart, their uncertainty about what they saw. Second, I mean to offer the Playhouse's communal experience of uncertainty as an alternative to the solitary, even sometimes tortured, experiences of doubt that otherwise characterize the intellectual history of skepticism. We might think of Augustine's anguished self-interrogations, or Montaigne's remove to his library, or Descartes' reduction of the world to his mind alone. There's a reason, of course, that the soliloquy has been so often associated with theatrical doubt. If the stakes and the risk of such doubting are high, I hope the book shows what the essential unreality of performance accomplished by contrast. Contradictory spectacles lowered the stakes of unknowing. The upending of familiar theatrical conventions both encouraged spectators' interpretive errors and freed those mistakes of material consequence. The commercial theater made the experience of uncertainty communally pleasurable, inviting playgoers to withstand the doubt endemic to a culture in the midst of thoroughgoing epistemological change. Theatrical uncertainty was entertaining, I suggest, in a doubled sense, licensing playgoers' suspension among countervailing possibilities as it involved them in the process of performance itself. Again, that was Lauren Robertson. Next, We'll hear from Jeremy Lopez, professor in the Department of English at Montclair State University, having recently moved from the University of Toronto, where he taught for 17 years. He received his PhD from Cornell University, and from 2002 to 2005, he was an assistant professor in the Department of English at the College of William and Mary. Since 2018, he has also served as the editor of Shakespeare Quarterly, the flagship journal in the field of Shakespeare studies. Here is Jeremy Lopez. There is a passage in the third book of Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, where the narrator observes that all the productions of a particular time look alike. He goes on to say that there is nothing more evocative of passages from various novels 
copies of which were displayed outside the grocery store in Cambrai when he was a child. Then the decorative pattern that served as a border for certain stock certificates of the same era. It's one of those Proustian observations that instantly seems true and that you find yourself, or at least I find myself, repeating all the time because confirmations of its truth begin to appear everywhere. Still, I had never found occasion to apply this observation to early modern drama until I read Lauren Robertson's book. One of the most remarkable things about entertaining uncertainty in the early modern theater is its fluid, seamless movement, often in the course of a single paragraph or even a single sentence, between the culture of the commercial theater and the culture of early modern England more broadly. Between, on the one hand, the tiny props, the still and kinetic and disguised bodies, the lively, then hollowed out, then re-enlivened dramatic conventions that made the stage a world apart. And on the other, the civic and religious rituals, the medical and scientific and legal texts, the political controversies, and the sermons, poetry, and popular literature that defined the playgoer's world. This premise that the commercial theater and the culture in which it arose were epistemologically akin is borne out on every page of the book and to my mind allows Robertson to demonstrate with enviable persuasiveness that the reigns of three monarchs and the evident evolution of stage conventions and audience response notwithstanding, early modern drama, broadly considered, is a discrete and unified aesthetic and social phenomenon. Another remarkable thing about entertaining uncertainty, and the thing I like best about it, is its magnificent parade of examples. The heavy tread of Hamlet's armored ghost, Pisanio squinting after Posthumus's waving handkerchief, the empty and waiting chairs at the beginning of the banquet scene in Macbeth, the stuttering characters and their impersonators in Look About You and Marston's What You Will, the death of Henry IV in the famous victories of Henry V, simulated darkness in The Night Walker, the elusive opening of Edward II and the speculative conclusion of Perkin Warbeck and the murky miniature picture in Massinger's A Picture. These are just a few of the examples Robertson marshals to explore the myriad ways in which playwrights and their audiences deployed and navigated uncertainty as the animating principle of theatrical meaning and pleasure. Here again, the book is fluent and seamless in its movement among the familiar plays of Shakespeare and the less familiar, often downright obscure, plays of his contemporaries. Robertson's Catholic attitude toward plays and playwrights is both the ground of and necessitated by her interest in the evolution as well as the recursiveness of dramatic conventions. And this sort of broad lens approach to the plays of the period is the methodological realization of her ambitious claim that London's commercial theater industry transformed the very shape of its culture into entertainment. It rendered the essential contrariety of early modernity spectacular. Robertson's sustained engagement with the period's lesser known plays makes clear both how much those plays have to offer and how much we can learn from her as a reader of dramatic language, action, and possibility. I was particularly dazzled by her discussion of Massinger's The Picture. On page 120, Robertson writes that, quote, Massinger deliberately exaggerates the miniature picture's failure to lay bare Sophia's thoughts. So Ma Massinger deliberately exaggerates its failure <clears throat> in order to offer up the soliloquy as a key theatrical means by which her mind might be successfully accessed. After reading this, I scribbled in the margin, 
but access still requires interpretation. Two pages later, I found that my note had been anticipated, perhaps even lured out of me by, <laughs> by Robertson's carefully structured argument. Soliloquies, she writes on page 122, are an interpretive trap, <laughs> the means by which Massinger lures spectators into a false sense of confidence that they can dive into Sophia's hidden thought. From here, she unfolds a brilliant demonstration of how the play dramatizes the uncertainty of Sophia's motives by implying and then withholding a retributive bed trick plot. Quote, the unmediated access to the mysteries of Sophia's mind, she writes on 123, is intertheatrically construed as the correct anticipation of the play's plot. The delights of reading entertaining uncertainty are akin to those of reading early modern plays. Surprise and discovery, sudden reversals, unexpected synthesis. At times, Robertson seems to be giving us virtually a first-hand account of the phenomenological intertwining of the early modern theater with the culture of which it was a part. She writes like a historian and thinks like a playwright. I will conclude my remarks by asking a question that is shamelessly connected to my own work. Like Lauren, I think I, I am interested in moments of theatrical failure or inefficacy, moments where clarity becomes obscurity, where conventions run out of steam, where audience expectations are thwarted or unmet. At the same time, I am, and I think we share this interest as well, interested in recuperation and bringing as many formerly overlooked plays as possible to bear on the discussion of early modern theatricality. The problem I always have is in dovetailing these two interests around the question of critical judgment, ours or more urgently, that of the historical audience. I wonder whether and to what extent this kind of the question of critical judgment is important to the argument of entertaining uncertainty. Webster's White Devil, for example, is mentioned three times in the book as a descendant of the Spanish tragedy, as a play that makes surprising use of the well-worn convention of reanimation, and as a play that gestures toward but does not deploy the convention of the revenge mask or the, the murder mask. Does it matter, I wondered, for this book's discussion of play's capacity to reflect the culture and to convert uncertainty into pleasure? Does it matter that this play seems not to have pleased its first audience and was perhaps not performed again after its premiere? And indeed, that this might well have been the case for most of the plays performed during the period. Again, that was Jeremy Lopez. Next, we'll hear from Julie Crawford. She's the Mark Van Doren Professor of Humanities at Columbia University and works on 16th and 17th century English literature and culture. She has written on Shakespeare, John Fletcher, Margaret Cavendish, the Sidneys, Anne Clifford, Margaret Hobby, and Mary Worth, as well as post-Reformation religious culture, the history of reading, and the history of sexuality. Here is Julie Crawford. When I was teaching in Vancouver in 2006, I went with a group of professors to see a production of Twelfth Night at the very unfortunately named Bard on the Beach, a Shakespeare festival literally on the beach in Vancouver. At the end of the performance, the character playing Viola Cesario, one of the most famous cross-dressed characters in Shakespeare's oeuvre, came on stage dressed 
explicitly against the play's diegetic and extra-diegetic instructions in women's clothes. We all, to a person, gasped aloud, clasped our pearls, <laughs> soliciting daggers from all the people sitting next to us, making ourselves highly unpopular. In the play as written, Viola Cesare remains on stage, dressed as a male page through the end. A fact that's central not only to the story as written, but to the pleasures, both erotic and theatrical, the theater-going pleasures of that play. I think about this moment all the time and have never had an adequate way of understanding it, other than the rather obvious fact that we knew the play better than the people putting it on. <laughs> it's not, I think, immodest to say, however, that that is not an infrequent occurrence of any scholar going to the theater, and that we all did in some form or another gender or queer critique. One of the pleasures of reading Lauren's new book is that it gives me a number of new ways in which to understand that moment, and more importantly, a number of new ways in which to understand what happens on the early modern stage writ large. Lauren discusses Twelfth Night in her chapter on space, which reveals the way in which early modern playwrights use the architecture of the playhouse and the spatial dynamics of the stage, often quite literally the entrances and the exits, and the tiring or the dressing house into and from which characters exit and reappear, to produce a form of impersonation that relies on the partial knowledge of spatial manipulation and the recessive places of the stage, the doors that lead, as Lauren puts it, to, quote, unseen elsewheres beyond the stage, help to produce not only epistemological uncertainty about identity, my previous concern, but also, and this primarily on stage, depictions of the intersubjectivity or interrelationality of identity. We know Sebastian the impersonated only through his relationship with his impersonator. If the playgoing space is divided into onstage presence and offstage absence, we get to enjoy not only the occasional traces of impersonation left behind for discovery, the beard and counterfeited hair in the amply named look about you, but also the onstage encounter between Cesario and Viola's brother Sebastian this is a quotation from the play. Do not embrace me till each circumstance of place, time, fortune do cohere um, that I am a Viola, Cesario tells Sebastian. Their joint appearance is signal to spectators that the play's comic resolution approaches. And, and this is the part that explains our reaction at Bart on the Beach, a refusal of the uncertainty of that arrival. Lauren's point is that the relegation of the impersonated character offstage invites us to evaluate him in the wake of the imposter's performance. The imposter, that is, has primacy. Their clothing, voice, and gait train us to recognize the counterfeited and thus teach us that there is no clear distinction between persons, an experience that, as Lauren puts it, radiates that destabilizing duplicity back to the playhouse. While others have argued that the early modern stage produced a theater-going population acutely in turn to the repertory and tropes of that theatrical culture and trained them to be rewarded for it, returning again and again and again to the theater. Le Lauren instead shows the ways in which early modern playwrights, including Shakespeare, twisted that convention by thwarting playgoers' raised expectations about what was to come. The coming of the trope tuned them in, but the narrative surprise the uncertainty of where the narrative would go was what kept them coming back. What I like about this argument vis-a-vis -vis Twelfth Night is that what had hitherto been an argument about, for me, about the queerness of the stage, a stage that took boys for women, and thus an ideological, say, or thematic or identitarian or in some ways historical argument, becomes in Lauren's hands an argument about the theater's mechanisms, 
some quite literally mechanical, for exploiting uncertainty as a key theatrical pleasure. Uncertainty is rewarded not by its obviation, that is, but by its plenitude. The disruption of well-established conventions like the cross-dressed heroine reappearing as a heroine in women's clothes at the end of the play is experienced by what Lauren calls a jolt of unknowing. And the jolt, she argues, dashes interpretive security, and this unbalancing constitutes the entertainment of uncertainty. Lastly, we'll hear from W.B. Worthen, Alice Brady Pell's professor in the arts and professor and chair of the Department of Theater at Barnard College, Columbia University. He also serves as co-chair of the PhD program in theater at Columbia and is a professor in the theater division of the School of the Arts and in the Department of English and Comparative Literature. Here is W.B. Worthen. As Artaud complained in his famous essay, No More Masterpieces, in the literary imagination, the play, the drama, the poetry is conceived as the privileged instigator of theater, the dimension of the performance that lends its practice significance, cultural power and longevity, meaning. That is, as Artaud recognized avant la lettre for most people, especially in the era of printed plays, logocentric theater is theater. Despite the widespread impact of Artaud's thinking on how we make and understand theater today, this feeling for the work of theater remains deeply dyed in the study of theater and drama. Poets are makers, creators, maybe even unacknowledged legislators, but their theatrical colleagues are something else. The polite term most often used today is practitioners. I want to open my thoughts about Lauren's engagement with dramatic theater by noticing the frequency and variety of her use of this word practitioners, and by pausing to think about early modern theater as an event, an uncertainly entertaining event, composed by a cast of practitioners. It's not a term Shakespeare and company would have used for themselves, though it was available at the time, often used for lawyers, people who have an occupation. And while T.S. Eliot described Dryden as a poetic practitioner who learned from Johnson, I'd say that the widespread application of this term to theatrical artists dates more recently. The OED has an apposite citation to 1987. For better and worse, referring to theater makers as practitioners today marks what Shannon Jackson once described as a conceptual or ideological tension between what she called the intellectual and the manual on which so much humanistic meaning-making relies. The intellectual and the manual, the poet, poetic and the practical, the creative and the executive, in other performance media, say film, where the screenplay has a different location in the armature of production than is attributed to the dramatic script, it would seem odd to preserve these hierarchies to refer to the actors, directors, cinematographers as mere practitioners. But in the humanities, theater often appears under the sign of the masterpiece, where the poetic origin of the durable work is protected from those who merely practice on or through it. I'm pulling this thread because I think Lauren's book works in a different direction, one that has implications for early modern theater and drama studies and beyond them too. Lauren also takes, and here I'm quoting, theatrical apprehension simultaneously imaginative and interpretive to depend on the smooth transition of meaning from stage to audience. This interpretive sense of theater, though, is conceived through the engagement of writers in and among practitioners and enables a specific kind of entanglement. Entertaining uncertainty imagines the text not so much as instigating others' practices as collaborating with their formality in a sense as a piece of software that with an imaginative engagement of what we know about the operating system of performance could be used to reverse engineer the complex interactive machine of which it was once a part. 
used by the hardware of theater and the technologies of acting, the practiced script locates early modern spectators as something other than mere participants. They too are sophisticated practitioners of a processual event, one here characterized by its distinctive modes of uncertainty. Entertaining uncertainty is rich in its reading of familiar and unfamiliar moments. Here's one. Although a stage direction in Henry IV Part I suggests that Falstaff, quote, falls down as if he were dead, that as if is undecidedly imperative addressed to the actor or indicative describing what the character does. But in the pit, what's the difference to us of that as if? After all, both actors on stage playing Hotspur and Falstaff do just that, fall down as if dead. That as if points to a hardware problem. In a theater in which dead bodies are practically removed from the stage, Hamlet lugging the guts that used to be Polonius to another room, Falstaff's rise from the stage is a moment of focused theatrical uncertainty, where, to speak in the old ways, the tenor and the vehicle have become uncertainly reversible. In his theater, Falstaff's death is grooved to a different machinery than, say, Sam's death in Pinter's homecoming. According to one of the characters, he was dead for about 30 seconds or so. Hal's failure to lug the huge guts off stage troubles the as-if gap we observe between actor and character, as though as-if marked an ontological rather than a merely practical or important practical decision. Left on stage, the weightless character has no way off other than through the reanimation of the performer, and yet the actor standing up and walking off marks the end of the character. Leaving the body on stage threatens not so much what Falstaff fears, that Hotspur will arise, as something else, that our mutual practice of the play will be broken. It's a pleasure that Shakespeare's stage frequently risks. Oh, heavy sight. Think about those boy actors playing Cleopatra and Charmian and Iris, joking through their heavy grief as they haul the heavy actor playing Antony aloft. Will they drop him? What then? <laughs> the delicate liveliness of dramatic character is uncertainly distributed across the body of the actor, simultaneously sustained and betrayed by that weight. Lauren's investment in the spectator's practice is visible in her attention to the dynamics of seeing in the early modern theater. Whereas, say, Nora Helmer's upwardly striving parlor is part of a fully bourgeoisified material social world that begins just outside the practical door of the proscenium stage, the tiring house doors of an early modern theater frame a boundary between spaces of essential transformability. The sterile promontory of the thrust stage, it's elsewhere, anywhere, nowhere, symmetrical with the everywhere, anywhere, nowhere through the upstage doors. There's doors that I suppose might sometimes play the part of doors, Gertrude's closet maybe, but are often just a theatrical prop hedging the dramatic scene. I don't think there are doors in the forest of Arden. This fluid interiority maps the fluid interiority of characterization, the transformation of stage objects, of actors, and implicitly of the spectatorial subjects of performance, those everyone's, anyone's, and no one's in the pit. Entertaining uncertainty is rich in this kind of reading. How to engage theatrical history when the events on stage keep moving in and out of the historical, where the verification of sight means that the objects too small for sight that we see on stage are doing what the characters say they're doing, where the theater frames an emerging community of actors and audiences regularly mediated by playing together. We can build a new globe on the bank side, restore original practices to modern practitioners, but we are not transformed. What Lauren provides here, I think, is a way to see into a place we are no longer able to inhabit and into a practice we are no longer able to take up. As she puts it, the theater transformed uncertainty from a state to be traversed or merely endured into the very satisfaction of spectators' expectations. That is to say, the pleasure of practicing theater. Again, that was W.B. Worthen. Now, if you, like me, have been curious about the wordplay in the title of Lauren Robertson's book, is it entertaining as in considering uncertainty? Is it 
uncertainty which entertains, then you're not alone. Here is Lauren Robertson's response to an event attendee asking about the title of her book. Let's listen. I ironically sort of take the entertaining as in fun part of the pun really seriously. I think that I'm really trying to make a distinction between the kinds of doubting that we're maybe more familiar with as solitary or torturous somehow and as stymieing in some ways as a result. The difference between Hamlet's own doubting and our experience of the, the play when we watch it, our spectators' experience of the play, right? So I do think that for the entertaining as consideration or as a kind of trying out to work, that other sense of entertaining is really necessary. One of the things I think that the theater does so well or in such interesting ways is transform the kind of stasis of uncertainty into something that sort of simply due to the construction of live performance has to be gotten through or, or moved through. And there's a way in which I think the pleasurable aspect of entertainment is a kind of motivating force for that forward momentum. And is maybe another way I'd distinguish the sort of stasis that Hamlet feels when he's giving the to be or not to be speech versus the kind of transformation of uncertainty into theatrical possibility, the sort of plenitude of possibility that's encompassed when spectators are asked to consider opposed possibilities, right? The multiple turns that a play might take at any given moment. There's a kind of propulsive effect that's part of both senses of entertainment, I think. And that's all the time we have for today. I wanna to thank Lauren Robertson and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was Celebrating Recent Work by Lauren Robertson. The title of her new book is Entertaining Uncertainty in the Early Modern Theater, Stage Spectacle and Audience Response. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.